Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome to 1033. This podcast was created in an effort to create community connection and conversation around mental health. It was originally created by a first responder for first responders. However, the lessons learned through life experience transcend these roles. Join us as we aim to reduce the stigma around mental health and create a safe environment for you, the listener, to reflect on the journey as others share their story. The success of this project is a result of the direct support from the listeners and from corporations. This support directly translates to increasing the quality of the podcast that I am ultimately able to provide to you. I would like to take a quick moment to hear from our sponsors who believe in this project. CanaConnect's mission is to empower military and RCMP veterans on their holistic journey to wellness through community, conversation, and medical cannabis education. CanaConnect is committed to providing opportunities to engage with supportive communities across the country at their wellness lounges from coast to coast. Drop in any time to grab a coffee, meet their team, and enjoy fulfilling conversations with like-minded people. CanaConnect understands that healing requires a holistic approach, which is why they put so much emphasis into connection and the community. CanaConnect leads with compassion and care to ensure that everyone in the community is able to learn, heal, and thrive while working to end the stigma around mental health. Thank you to our sponsors for continuing to make this project a success. Welcome back to 1033. Today we are joined by Dr. Jasmine Dean. She is a registered psychologist, has a master's in a PhD in clinical psychology. Jasmine, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Nate. I'm really excited to be here. For for many of our listeners, having a psychologist on the show to talk about mental health is going to be something that I hope is truly fascinating. The conversation around mental health uh, is very much a lived experience. We all experience mental health issues uh, on various different degrees. Some of us choose to later go on to, to university or to college and to pursue becoming a psychologist. So my very first question to you is what is that driving force that led you to go down that path? The funny thing for me when I talk about this is that I knew I wanted to be a psychologist in grade eight. And I specifically remember this because it makes me chuckle at myself. I wrote in my grade eight yearbook that I wanted to be a psychologist, but I misspelled psychologist because even with a PhD, my spelling is atrocious. That's something that I still struggle with to this day. Um, But I remember I had a classmate and her parents were going through a somewhat difficult divorce. And we started talking about how she was seeing a therapist, a psychologist, somebody to help her navigate as her parents went through this. And something about that really just piqued my interest that there's people whose role it is to help guide and support other people through the different challenges that come up in life. Um, So that got me started thinking about psychology and, and it just really like that interest from there just developed over the course of my undergrad and then going through grad school. I found that in grad school, it's a lot more practical, a lot more hands-on where you start getting that therapy experience 
pretty quickly in the program. And so that to me just let me know that I was in the right place because I've always enjoyed sitting down with people, listening to their stories. And now I feel like I really have the tools to support them as they navigate different things that they face. Yeah. And I love, I love how, uh, in life we can have those moments that we recall from our very early on years of kind of what led us to this point. And I think so many of us that navigate life, uh, cause I too have a very similar story. My, my story goes down the path of policing. You choose psychology because of something that you, you experienced and the passion and the empathy is something that I've always been very drawn to, uh, in regards to you. Uh, and I really applaud you for that because it does take a very special person to have a certain level of empathy, to want to sit down and help people. Uh, and there's always a cost to everything we do in life. So there's even a cost to you. And we've had some very candid conversations about, you know, not only are you able to do this for people, but how do you, you also take care of yourself in this role? And that's something that's mm-hmm. always, always fundamental. And I think too, for a lot of us, we often forget that psychologists are these people that they know how to handle everything on their own. They don't need to go and get help. And I think the first thing that really kind of impacted me when I was connecting with you was you were telling me, Hey, I also go and get help too. And I was like, very interesting. I, I guess you'd have to, right? Uh, yeah. And that's and that's kind of the important thing about our lives is we all need to go and get help. Yes, exactly. Well, as cliche as it is, and we all have a physical body and you don't think, I don't know, just because you're a personal trainer, you don't need to go work out, right? You do things to take care of yourself that way. So to me, it's a really natural thing to think we also all have mental health, mental wellness, mental struggles. Why would you not have to put in some amount of effort to take care of that, no matter who you are or what your profession is? And the the complicated thing about empathy too is that it's a very important aspect to have in our lives. But for those of us that are empathetic, we also need to be very careful about how many uh, emotions of other people's emotions we let into our own lives. So, I mean, we're going to have a truly fascinating series here for our listeners. We're going to dive into the boundaries, into the the overall, how do we approach our mental health on a, on a different level? Uh, maybe one that you're not totally ready for or comfortable with, but we want to create, you and I actually wanted to join together and create this safe space to have this, this beautiful conversation conversation about mental health where there's no stigma, there's no shame, uh, there's truly acceptance. And there's just this recognition that at some point in your life, each and every single one of us will have some kind of mental health crisis or, or weakness that comes along from the environment that we're in. And that's totally okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, so- we're all human. Absolutely. So before we start to get into the meat and potatoes of everything, let's dial it back and let's look at you real quick about uh, your journey into academia and your experience with, you know, maybe how that, you know, the younger Jasmine Dean now is now studying to become a psychologist and some of the things that you're seeing while you're studying and maybe that perspective shift now as you come into that role of eventually going down the path of becoming an actual psychologist. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the training that I got um, was really 
in depth and, and covered a range of mental health concerns. So um, the program at the University of Waterloo takes a lifespan approach, which means that we work with children and adults the entire time that we're in the program. And in doing that, I think, again, we really see the range of human experience. How do you respond to the more common mental health concerns, anxiety concerns, depression concerns, people struggling with relationship issues and intimacy and parenting and childhood development? Um, so my initial training was quite general. And then I want to say maybe in my fourth or fifth year of training, I did a practicum placement at the Operational Stress Injury Clinic that was associated with St. Joe's Hospital out of London, Ontario. And that really focused on assessment of trauma in veterans, and they also see RCMP officers. Um, so that was my, my first exposure really to this more niche area of service culture and trauma-related or operational stress injuries. So I did that practicum there where I assessed a number of people with different deployment experiences, individuals who had experienced sexual assault and harassment in the forces, um, and just really getting an understanding of how service culture and trauma can have this interplay and how that impacts people then upon their release or upon their return from a deployment. While I was doing that practicum placement, there was a conference here in Ontario, and I wish I could remember the name of it, but it was on first responder mental health. And they had a panel of first responders, fire, EMS, um, police, corrections officer, come in and just talk about their experiences with mental health. So I already had this building understanding of trauma and operational stress injuries. And then when I went in and heard people talk about their experiences from a first responder perspective, that to me really highlighted both the similarities in terms of working with veterans and people with military experience and first responders, but also some of the unique differences and challenges that these first responders were facing, for example, living and working in the same community, right, or not having a six-month deployment where your challenges, you're deployed and then trying to reintegrate with your family when you return, as a first responder, you're going to work and working shift work, and then at the same time having to balance parenting responsibilities and reintegrating with your family after every single shift or on your time off. So that was my path into specializing in first responder work and, and just knowing that there was such a need for that support. Um, for some reason, on a personal level, that really hit home to me. I think just the challenge of how do you live a life? where this is your day-to-day -day career and do that while maintaining your mental health? That's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> that is a great question. Now, I'm not going to answer that right now. I'm going to continue to kind of focus on you here in the moment. One of the things I'm going to come back to is obviously as a young uh, young female uh, at eight, you, you have this experience where you're seeing the, the need or at least this opportunity where someone's getting help uh, for their mental health because of the things that are happening on in the environment that they're in. And while that might have been the seed that was planted for you, it's not until later on that it's almost like you have this experience at the OSI, the Operational Stress Injury Clinic now where, you know, the seed's been planted, you've been watering it. Now you're very much at a place where it almost seems like some 
passion now has kind of hit you mm, and you've mm-hmm. found your area where you really want to focus on, right? So there's been a yeah. bit of a shift now in the person that you are and kind of where you're wanting to go with, you know, being able to help others and provide mental health support. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And like you touched on earlier, as psychologists, even for me and my training, I don't want to misrepresent it, but I really can't remember talking often about how are you handling the different stories that you're hearing? How are you taking care of your own mental health? Knowing that, again, you're in this role where you are going to be exposed to potentially traumatic information experiences and helping people navigate that. And I had a practicum experience where I was working in a child and youth center, and a number of those kids were involved with children and family services. And I really wasn't prepared for what I read in some of the files, just doing the file review in terms of why some of these kids were removed from their home. And I've really come to understand now that for things to get to the point where a child's being removed, at least here locally where I'm at, things have to be pretty severe um, for them to be completely removed from the home. So knowing that I was getting those kinds of stories, and I just remember reflecting to my supervisors at the end of the practicum that I was surprised at how much that impacted me. And it was something that I don't think they had thought to ask me about because it was just the norm for them reading some of these stories and working with these kids. And it wasn't something that I was necessarily aware was going to impact me in the way that it did. So I think I had this understanding that your job can expose you to stressful material, trauma material. That's some of my own personal experience with that. And then maybe even that, as I was hearing other people talk about work and the types of experiences they had Um, it's definitely, like you said, a personal passion of mine to think about how you can be so committed to the job that you're doing and you really have to be aware of the impact that it's having on you personally in order to avoid burning out or serious injury or it having a negative impact on you as a person. Uh, Very touching comments on how that first initial step into the world of some of the trauma that exists for others, how it impacted you. And uh, anytime I think any of us have, have roles in life where we're there supporting others and we see kind of this more dark or sinister part of life. Yeah. I.e. trauma to a child. It hurts us. There's no way around it. Whether you read it in a report, whether you visually see it, whether you experience it firsthand, uh, whether you hear about it secondhand, there's very much a <clears throat> a cost to that. It's it's going to it's going to shake you a little bit. And I think it's very important to recognize that when we get into first responder work, and I think for, even for myself, or if we're dealing with our mental health that life will throw these curveballs at you. And it's really important to figure out how to deal with them. Don't hold this belief that, you know, life is perfect and it is beautiful and it is free of pain and suffering because it really isn't. Mm -hmm. It is going to be there and you have to figure out your, your roadmap on how to deal with that pain and suffering. Now to come back to you, uh, cause you, you beautifully painted kind of that first experience for you where trauma was really felt. And you saw a little bit of the cost. I'm assuming you went and got help after that. Were able to process some of the emotions. We'll kind of move beyond that. Am I wrong? 
Did I? I, you know what? Even at that point, I don't know that I, I did, right? It's so easy to think, well, this impacted me, but then you kind of put it in a box and you keep going with your training. Um, and so it really wasn't until the end of my graduate training where I started to see a psychologist. And that was out of uh, a totally different experience. We had a professor who had encouraged us to consider seeing a therapist just for that experience of being on the other side of the couch. Right? So even I, again, in this profession, you don't necessarily pick up on when would it be helpful to process something. Um, it's it's one of those things where eventually I did and I and I now can see it. But similar to so many of my clients at the time, it was one of those things where I really didn't necessarily have the tools to recognize, hey, you could process this versus just noting that, oh, this had an impact and then boxing it up and continuing on at that point. And what I love about that too, I mean, this, this last thought that you have echoes on this important part of the vulnerability that needs to come from this space. Even when we think we're doing life really, really well, and we're experiencing the stress of life or the experiences of trauma, uh, a lot of us tell ourselves this little lie that I'm doing well and I don't need help. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. But if you can, if you can kind of accept that, uh, this different narrative of let's embrace a little bit of discomfort here. I'm going to say, maybe I don't feel like I need help right now, but I'm going to preemptively go and get that help because there's usually a little bit of stuff that happens subconsciously to us that we're not fully aware of. Right. So it's this fine dance between, you know, a little little bit or a lot of it. Right. (laughs) That's funny. Um, (laughs) But, and that's, and that's how mental health goes. We think we're doing well and sometimes we're actually not. And we maybe don't hold the awareness into where we are in that moment of this mental health journey because there's so many different factors that can play into that. Uh, And that too is a very, very crucial part of your journey into your own mental health and where are you? So in these, these are the kind of conversations, like I'm loving this already. Like we are going to be able to give people some amazing content and how to do this assessment on themselves. Mm -hmm. Now for you, we've kind of painted a picture how you end up in the first responder care support role at OSI through your studies, but how does, how does the story go from there? How do you get out into the real world and how do you become largely immersed the way you are now, now in this role of caring for first responders? Mm -hmm. From the OSI clinic, as it usually goes, I made connections with individuals there, psychologists there who were connected to other individuals that I was working with in the community. And it really just so happened that at the point where I was wrapping up my training, they were beginning to start a clinic that focused on operational stress injuries um, out of a private practice. So Breakwater Institute out of Kitchener area here in Ontario was just being established as I was wrapping up my studies and I had connections to those psychologists through my training and through the OSI work. So as I was finishing my studies, I started to see some clients through them. And then when I wrapped up, I worked there full time for a couple of years, really right until the pandemic. And it was when the pandemic happened that 
life circumstances had me move from Kitchener to another city, and I've opened my own private practice here, continuing to do that work here in London, Ontario. So for you now, I think you you were actively practicing right around 2014. So you've been doing this now for about eight years, correct? And six years in private practice. Is that roughly correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you have yeah. like thousands yeah. upon thousands of therapeutic hours logged with clients. Now, do do most of your clients, do they fall into the first responder role? Do you take on civilians? Who, who and what do you see? I would say 95% of my clients are first responders. Right now, the majority are police officers. Um, And then I would say it's a fairly even split between fire and EMS. I have in the past worked with a couple of corrections officers, but I don't get as many of them being referred to my practice currently. Um, And then from time to time, I will see other professionals who I would say are frontline workers who are dealing with work-related trauma. So right now, um, people who would fall into that category would be things like healthcare professionals, right, over the pandemic especially. I think that's opened up a whole other area of trauma exposure. Um, Individuals working in the education system, Uh, working with high-risk students, again, through the pandemic and what was expected there. So I would say that I try to keep my waitlist pretty first responder specific just because there is always a waitlist. And I want to make sure that given that's what I specialize in, people have an opportunity to come to me when they want to and need to. Um, So I try to keep it pretty narrow to first responders. But if there's other people with sort of frontline adjacent work who might have similar trauma exposure, trauma experiences that they want to process, then I try to also make space for those people in my practice. Um, And I think we're just really starting to identify, right? Like the impact. I have a family member who works or who worked as a crown attorney, right? So again, it's sometimes I want to be careful and say, I do work with first responders, but there's so many other professions where people are also exposed to trauma to secondary exposure to trauma, like you're talking about. Um, And it's not a comparison by any means, but just making sure that we're acknowledging that there are other people who might need similar support given what they're exposed to in their line of work. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that this mental health journey, while we're focused very much on the first responder right now and and trying to give back to them, uh, mental health impacts us all. Whatever you're doing in life, whatever, whatever job you have, however you are choosing to serve or not serve society, uh, you as a human no doubt will go through trauma in your life. It's just a part of life. And trying to figure out yeah. how you deal with it uh, when you're unaware as to how you deal with it uh, and to be able to shift that into more of an awareness component to change that behavioral response post-trauma or to better aid in the processing of what you've experienced is really fundamentally important. Uh, I don't remember the statistic behind this, but I know for, for example, I think civilians Civilians, I think, go through, I think it's, is it, is it one to four traumatic events in their lifetime? Uh, whereas first responders mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. go through 500 to a thousand, depending on the years of service that they have. So the risk yeah. and potential for a first responder to go through something very traumatic is very high. 
And the argument can easily be made that they're at a, a more susceptible um, framework, I'll call it, of life to be more impacted by, say, mental health challenges. And there's no shame in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? We don't go into exactly. this profession uh, hurt or or impacted necessarily by trauma. I mean, there's there's usually childhood trauma there for all of us. I will acknowledge that. But outside of that, the the trauma that happens at the workplace for the most part, when we go into policing, first responder work, or whatever we're doing, for the most part, we're actually quite well. We go through very rigorous psychological testing. Uh, There's all of these different checks in place. So we all enter first responder world quite well. And then Mm -hmm. over time, that trauma kind of chips away at us and acknowledging that it's it's something that we probably all I would think all of us go through in our life is is just it's just a part of it now some of the statistics behind the diagnostic rate of who has PTSD in the first responder and I can speak to I'll say the RCMP for right now I think we're sitting at about 50 percent diagnosed mental health issues. So 50% of our 20,000 men and women that are out there doing the first responder work, that's one in two people will be diagnosed with some kind of mental health issue, Mm -hmm. whether it's PTSD or depression or anxiety or the gamut. uh, I'm not sure on those details, but you will go through something. Now, the municipalities are reporting, I think a little bit lower, somewhere around the 40 to 45% range. Uh, But I'm just trying to paint a picture here that we got to take care of ourselves. Oh, exactly. Well, and you're touching on something which is really important in that it's a human experience to deal with mental health concerns, to deal with trauma. But there's something unique about work-related trauma in particular, right? Most people will experience some amount of mental health concern throughout their life. But my understanding is that as they were sort of coining this term operational stress injury, there was a real push to recognize that there's something that needs to be noted about mental health or mental injuries that come directly as a result of service of the work that you're performing versus somebody who might develop those mental health concerns through other avenues. Um, And recognizing that there is a very clear link to service here and that this is an injury, just like a physical injury, like a back injury or knee injury, you might sustain particularly as the result of the work that you're doing um, versus something, again, that comes on more organically or as a result of personal experiences or, um, you know, those kinds of things. So, again, recognizing that there is this factor we need to address here where you're doing a very particular kind of work and that work in itself comes with unique risks for mental impact, mental injury, mental health concerns, however you want to label that. And again, to echo and build on kind of where you're going with this train of thought, because I think it's really important too uh, that we acknowledge that, yes, this is very much a, uh, we're centered around the discussion around first responder mental health. But again, we've got to build a bridge for other people too that don't get into this role of first responder work, that the mental health issues are, are felt across all planes of life, mm-hmm. uh, whether you choose to serve or whether you choose to have a different job. And you just echoed, I think, uh, what was the example of the person that might have been having some difficulties because of the position that they were in through work? Something to do with the court. I think you referenced oh, a crown a, attorney. A crown right? attorney. Who are, like, I just think about the chain of people exposed when these critical incidents happen, right? Um, there was somebody else who was working in like body removal. 
um, or just crime scene cleanup, right? Again, it's just, there's so many different people who are involved to a different degree. And I know we'll get into this later, but just talking about how trauma is so personal, right? You can have 20 people exposed to the exact same critical incident, exact same scene, and only a handful of those are going to walk away with some trauma impact of that. Not that it won't impact people, right? But it's also very personal in terms of what sticks or what causes injury. So being aware of that, like aware of the roles that might expose you, and then also on a personal level, um, knowing that it's going to vary your reaction to these things from experience to experience and from person to person. Absolutely. And there was, it was something that I didn't really necessarily even think about until you mentioned it, but the crown attorney, how could you not take someone who's doing this, this service and constantly helping out victims uh, of certain crimes and read reports and see pictures and then mm-hmm. go into the courtroom and present this evidence in front of a judge and, you know, and help kind of control the narrative of what happened to this person and how justice needs to be sought. So we, it really does impact so many people, even beyond, beyond that first responder role. Like, I mean, I would think most police officers, yes, are going to go through this, but we tend to forget about the people that might not be showing up to the the crisis, right? The, the first responder, the police officer or the paramedic or the, the firefighter. And we kind of often forget, oh, there's corrections too. And there's nurses and there's doctors and there's psychologists and there's crown attorneys. And there's, you're right, there's so many layers of people that are built into this role in society of serving others for the pursuit yeah, of right. trying to make the world a better place. And that's very, very honorable, but there's also a very big segment of society that is going to go on to need help just from the cost of service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So very important stuff. And I think we've spent uh, the first half hour of painting a very clear picture of let's get rid of the stigma. Let's start to talk. Let's start to weigh in and look at our own mental health. Now, for the person who's who's listening right now to this conversation, and we're going to shift gears a little bit here into probably the next plane of where this needs to go. Your life now after seeing so many people come in and be at different stages, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past, I think there's kind of two categories of people that come in. There's the person that's in full-blown crisis. They might be facing divorce. They might be facing uh, addiction issues, post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety. They're not sleeping. They have all the symptoms and life just is no longer fun. They're in full-blown survival mode. But you Mm -hmm. also see people that come in and want to take a more preventative approach to their mental health that are either of the civilian uh, societal kind of line or the first responder. Let's take Mm -hmm. a moment and talk about that real quick. Yeah, you've captured it. I tend to see people at two sort of ends of the spectrum. Um, There's people like you're saying where they've started to recognize that they're experiencing symptoms, that they are no longer themselves, that they're having a breakdown in their ability to perform at work to the level that they need to. So there's probably varying degrees of crisis that people are in. But they all would fall into the category of recognizing that something is going wrong and I need to get some support around this. And then on the other end of things, I see people who are now, and I would say it's becoming more and more common, recognizing 
there's not necessarily any one particular thing that's bothering me or that I'm noticing right now, but I'd like to be preventative, right? Whether that's, I just want to have a relationship with a service provider so that if something comes up in the future, I already know you and we have that trust and that relationship established, or what can I do now to start building resilience? How can I help myself to offset some of the things that I'm seeing at work or to maintain the level of health and functioning that I have right now? The important thing too, to recognize is that obviously at certain points in our lives, we're going to most likely need to reach out and get help. Like we just discussed, either you're the preventative type who is maybe seeing something start to happen, or you want to gain more awareness into your past and maybe some of the behavioral issues you may have, uh, or you're the person that's in full-blown crisis mode, whatever the case is. I mean, we can honestly... Mm-hmm agree that this should be celebrated. Whatever brings you into the chair so that you start to have a conversation about your mental health and where you're at needs to be celebrated. It really does. And I think that's something, (laughs) absolutely. And we need to get away from this. Oh, you're going to get help. Interesting. What's wrong? You know, the judgment that may come from that, right? Because that still unfortunately does exist, but being able to positively support others who need to get to that point where they, they feel like they're ready to walk in for whatever their reason, preventative or crisis really does need to shift. And I think this, this celebration of good job, I'm happy for you good for you. Right. That, that should be the only thing that that person receives. But the interesting thing too, with this is when you get to a point where you're now getting help, and we've talked about this in the past is there's, there's this massive gap in when we get into the first responder world, whether a police officer, firefighter, we go to the Academy uh, or you go off for training, you start to get trained on how to do these things. You develop the skills on how to do your craft and you become quite good at it. Now there's starting to be a little bit of a shift where training is focusing a little bit more on mental health. Like let's call it maybe 5%, 10%, maybe lower than that. We're not sure. We don't have the numbers, but most academies out there are now starting to recognize, okay, we need to do a little bit more. We need to have a little bit more of a conversation around mental health. So we're moving in the right direction. So I'm glad we're there. But there is still very much a massive gap in how those people, those employees now in those organizations are supported when they get out into the field. And I remember an experience I had as a police officer. Somebody said, Nate, you got to buy this book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. And I read it and I was like, oh, this is amazing. I love it. But I also didn't really understand it because I was well at the time. And it wasn't until I got in the field where that book was on my nightstand, where I had intentions to read it again a year later. And then it eventually ended up in my closet. And then it was forgotten about. Yes. And then I continued on that path. And it wasn't until years later where I get diagnosed with PTSD. And now I'm going, how did I get here? So, and that's a very important thing that I want you to kind of build on is the gap in the field. I think we're doing a better job of training our people at training. I would probably argue that we need to do a little bit more or maybe a lot more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But outside of that, you know, the people that you, that you serve, is that a common trend? Are they starting to say, Hey, the training is getting better but we're seeing a gap in the field. When we get out to the field, we're not really necessarily supported anymore. The conversation goes quiet. Maybe there's human resources issues that we're facing and we're working (laughs) a lot of overtime. I see some smiles, some nods. So many things. 
Yeah. It is important to recognize there have been positive shifts in the field. And I will say that I see that. Um, there's more training around this. There is more of a recognition. And at the same time, there's still this huge gap because like you're saying, if <clears throat> you're early on in your career and you get this information, that's fantastic. At the same time, you don't necessarily have experiences to link it to, right? Like if you're still going through a lot of this talk about trauma is very hypothetical. And I think that's where people get into the idea that, well, this is what I signed up for, right? Like I knew to expect this. But my understanding from what my clients have reflected is that you might have a theoretical or hypothetical understanding of what you're going to be walking into. It's a totally different thing when you are facing the sights, sounds, smells, experience of actually being there and living it. And so there's benefit to getting training on resilience and mental health and stress early on. That sets a foundation, but it can't stop there. It needs to be followed up with ongoing conversations, maybe a repeat of some of this training as people are going through their career. And it just different things will stand out to you because now you have different experiences to link the information to. So one gap that I see is that it's treated like checking a box and checking that box, the quality of doing that, I think has improved. It's not just so checking a box, like I think we have developing training programs now that are doing a much better job of giving people quality information, but it still is sort of a one-time thing. Like, yep, you got your mental health and resilience training. We ran you through this program. And then the conversation really is left up to you, your peers, but there's no ongoing formal training around this or structured conversation. That's been my experience. Um, so it's, it's treated as a one-off when I think it needs to be continuing. And then the other thing, and I know that your most recent guest talked about this too, we're still very much dealing with, once you're out there, stoic service culture, right? So it's one thing to know that you might need help or you might face trauma. And it's another thing in terms of if you start to experience symptoms, if you start to reach out for help. How will you be perceived by the people around you? And that is a place where, again, I see shifts, but nowhere near where it needs to be. Um, the number of people who are absolutely terrified to take care of themselves because the impact that might have on their reputation within the service is heartbreaking to me. And these are people who have long careers, have accomplished so much and are so afraid that by making this choice to take care of themselves, they're going to undo everything that they've done in the last 20, 30 years in terms of building that reputation. And when you're relying on other people to have your back in life or death situations, I don't think it's just an ego thing to think, oh, I don't, you know, I don't want to hurt my reputation. Like this has very real consequences in terms of, will people trust me to have their back? And can I count on them to back me up? Knowing that my reputation is going to have an impact on that. That's just the reality of the work and the service culture. So like you're saying, there's one thing to know you might need help. And then this whole other conversation of what does it mean if I needed help and how will I be perceived? Such an interesting thing. 
you touched on a lot of uh, a lot of juice, a lot of good conversation, a lot of good thought. The first thing I want to come back to, and it's something that I talked about earlier on in this episode, was the ability to celebrate going in to get help. We need to shift that a little bit. And mm-hmm. I still saw that even in my time where uh, I openly acknowledged that I was going to get help. And that was back in about 2009 to 2010. We weren't really talking about mental health back then as first responders, but I was talking to some friends about it uh, or co-workers saying, yeah, I go for help. I mean, there's no shame in it. I mean, how could you not want to go to help, uh, to get help. I just got attacked last week and my shirt got ripped off and I got punched in the face and, you know, or, or worse, right? Like you need to go and deal with that kind of stuff on an emotional, mental, uh, level, right? It's just very natural. So I agree with you. I think we're starting to celebrate, uh, those that go and reach out for help are doing the right thing and we're there to truly support them hopefully without judgment or shame and really support them so that they can navigate their own emotional challenges and one of the things I went through and I I totally agree with you here it's very hard to go and get help because as first responders we feel like such a unique type of person who should never need to get help we can only give help And the level of shame and guilt that can come from that place can really impact us. And I think we're starting to flirt with those emotions a little bit here. But recognizing that there is going to be a level of shame and guilt when you first walk into a psychologist office or you reach out for help the first time. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. They're going to mm-hmm. help you with that feeling too. So don't let that be the real roadblock behind you not reaching out to get help. There's no shame in your experiences. Um, very complicated to work through the shame and the guilt in that moment, but it will, if you can, build that trust and offer yourself that compassion, that self-love to be able to step forward. You're going to do significantly better in life. Mm-hmm. Now, the second part of this too, something you touched on that was really important was this approach for, I think, a lot of first responder workplaces, they often check the box on mental health. And for me, uh, I I saw it personally. Uh, I've experienced it. The unfortunate thing that happens with checking the box is a lot of supervisors or people that have this, this leadership role in the workplace, they may check the box, but there comes a human element that's lacking there. The the real conversation, the empathy, the yes. real care, right? That needs yes. to be experienced in the workplace. Don't yes. just check the box. Ask the person, how are you doing? I've been there. Yeah. I, it's hard. Let's have a conversation about how you're doing, not, oh, have you done your course? Good. Check the box. We're done. Mm-hmm. We're moving on. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to see here, folks. So the level of care that needs to go into this is deep. Yeah. I'll touch on that because that I think is the third gap that I still see is on a systems level, is there the support that people need? Um, And like you mentioned, the HR headaches, dealing with workplace safety and insurance board, workers comp, whatever it's called, wherever you are, those are also huge barriers to accessing the help that people need still. And with that, like you're saying, there's a level of trauma that comes along with organizations checking boxes. It's where I got the name for my branding, my program sanctuary wellness from is this idea of sanctuary trauma. Right. And that term to me is hugely helpful in, in recognizing the impact that trauma can have, because it's not just about 
the calls people respond to or what happens. But this term sanctuary trauma captures when you've experienced something traumatic like that, let's say a critical incident, and then you reach out to the organization, the people who are expected to be a safe place to help you deal with trauma, and you're met with even more trauma, right? So whether that's having your experiences questioned or I can't tell you the number of times where I've had people respond to calls and then not have the time that they need to process things like that. Sanctuary trauma, something that is so important to understand. When we think about trauma, we often think about the lived experience or that actual experience of trauma, right? Being hit, uh, having something thrown at you, or the emotional impact of the trauma of seeing something that happens in front of you. Something that I, I was much later on aware of was this concept of sanctuary trauma, this concept of moral injuries. Now, we're not going to dive into that because that's probably an episode on itself. Mm-hmm. So we're going to come back from that. But if you don't know about those words, look them up and start to ask yourself the question of where does this fit in my life? Yes. If you're in the first responder world, you've experienced sanctuary trauma along with trauma and most likely a moral injury. It's there. It yeah. just is. Yeah. So, but we, we're not actually going to dive into that. So what we are going to talk about is something that truly fascinated uh, myself when I, when I heard this come from you. And it was this concept of emotional reconnection, emotional disconnection, and how that ties into suppression. Because I think for a lot of first responders that go through the first responder journey, we tend to go through some pretty intense stuff. We tend to try and suppress or emotionally disconnect in that moment. And it's really important to understand the concept of how do we and when do we emotionally reconnect so that we can process those emotions that we experience from the hard call. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of us are going to go to calls where we're going to recognize that in the moment I can't cry right now I can't be fearful right now yeah I can't be sad operationally right you have something that you need to deal with in someone's life may be on the line including yourself or a partner's so let's talk about that I'd love to hear kind of that Mm -hmm. so if we're talking about barriers and things that prevent people from getting help This is a huge one where oftentimes, whether it's through training, whether it's just personal approach to the world and your own coping style, I find that people in these first responder roles tend to be pretty good at compartmentalizing or boxing things up, doing what needs to get done in the moment. And that works short term. But in the long term, it often leaves people with a whole lot of unprocessed experiences because that's where it ends, right? You get through the call, you get through whatever it is that you're doing, you box it up, you put it on a shelf and you move on to the next thing until the shelves get full and then it all starts to fall down on you. And again, that's sometimes where I see people coming into my office. So I was exposed to this idea of functionally disconnecting in order to do your job, but then of equal importance in terms of mental wellness is the ability to functionally reconnect when it's appropriate to do so. So I learned about this when I was doing um, a resilience building program called Before Operational Stress that comes out of Calgary. And the idea of this functional disconnect and functional reconnect 
comes from a study that was done with physicians who were dealing with patient death. And the study looked at how do physicians prevent burnout? How do physicians operate on patients where you've got this potentially personal connection, right? Like you think of somebody who's in pediatric oncology and you're dealing with kids with cancer and you might have to go in and perform a surgery and at the same time maintain bedside manner when you're dealing with that child and their parents and their family or their support system. So how do you do that? And it came down to this idea of being able to functionally disconnect when you need to do your job, right? My understanding is as a surgeon, when you've got a patient on the table, you're almost coming at it like a mechanic looking under the hood of the car. You can't be thinking about the conversation you just had with that child's mother. You need to be focused on, okay, this is what I'm going in to remove. This is what I'm repairing. What are the steps that I need to follow? So you disconnect, you dial back the empathy in order to do that job. Same kind of thing, right? For first responders, you have operational duties, you have protocols, you go in and you get things done. And that's not necessarily the place to dial up the empathy or to be overly connected with your own personal reaction to what's happening. But if we leave it at that functionally disconnecting as the only coping strategy, then again, people are left with so much unprocessed trauma and experiences. So what we need to start to train is how do you then functionally reconnect in a way that's healthy with your own personal reaction to what you've experienced, right? And there are going to be times where it's appropriate to tap into that empathy response and think, wow, that's horrific, right? I really feel for those family members, for the person that I was just dealing with, or what a horrible event. Or you recognize your own moral code, right? Like you talked about that moral injury piece of, what does it mean that this happened? What does it mean to me that somebody was hit by a drunk driver, that this has happened to a child, right? And in the moment when you're dealing with the call, that's really not the place to be processing that. But to note that you're having a response and give yourself the time and space to come back to that is so important to being psychologically healthy. So disconnecting to work, but then creating the space to reconnect in order to finish off that level of processing. Absolutely love it. It's really important. We have to, we, mm -hmm. we, we really do have to emotionally disconnect. And I would think a lot of us in all of these different roles, like we were talking about police officers, fire, uh, ambulance, nurse, corrections, all the way down to crown prosecutors or people involved with the court systems. There, there's so many people and I'm missing a, a lot of people that are even there. Take teachers, for example, that see violence and say if you work down south in the Bronx, I mean, not a fun environment to be in, right? Very rough, very, uh, very violent. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can even imagine, right? Schools in Toronto, Vancouver, like you name it. Ab absolutely. Not even just that, but. Absolutely. The trauma you would see as a, uh, a teacher is there. It has to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? We're serving people and we're serving people that are very vulnerable. We're going to come across this. Now, we're going to shift a bit because there's a bit of a seed that gets planted in that moment with this thought of, you know, functional disconnection and uh, the reconnection that needs to come. Uh, and I think, again, that could almost be a topic onto itself, or at least an episode about how Absolutely. do we, how do we approach this? What are we doing? Are we meditating? Are we giving ourselves more than 15 minutes on the drive home to go, oh, I need to feel that stuff, that sadness that was there at that? that last MVA. 
because uh, you, you sometimes you need to take a little bit more time and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. it takes months to feel this stuff and really process it and talk about it so it doesn't impact you anymore. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to we're going to segue into kind of the last thing that I think is really important for today's episode. And I think it's kind of the foundation I I and yourself had really hoped to lay was how do we do this? How do we self-assess to ask ourselves, where are we in this mental health journey? So we're now moving away from the two types of people that come into your, your practice, the person that's in crisis and the person that's coming in with preventative type of uh, an awareness to them. They want to get ahead of things. But if you're at home and you don't fall into either of these categories, you're not a person that's in crisis and you're not a person that's willing to explore kind of that preemptive work, that self-investment into, you know, your, your prior childhood trauma or anything that you've been struggling with and guaranteed it's all there for us. How do we give people a tool and what does that look like? So they can look internally and say, where am I? It's critical to be self-aware and to know how to do that. Because I think a major pain point for people who come into my office when they're at that crisis point is often, how did I get here? Like, how did things get so bad? And then there's shame and guilt and self-blame about how did I let things get so bad, right? Why didn't I catch this sooner? And the analogy that's often used is like the frog in a pot of water, right? And you just slowly turn the temperature up and the frog doesn't even realize and then suddenly it's boiling, so it can be the same kind of thing, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? If, if we can help people to start to have an awareness of what are some of the more subtle signs, not of crisis necessarily, but even just that the job is impacting you, that over the last couple of years, things have shifted. Maybe your worldview has shifted a bit or how you're seeing other people or what you think about as you walk into a restaurant or a shopping mall, right? What are you looking for? Some of these more subtle details can help us to then start to assess how am I doing? What's going well? And is there anything that I might need to address here? One of the things I learned about uh, while I was at rehab was checking in with the body to hold an awareness with the term they they phrased it significant units of distress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things that we were tasked with challenging ourselves to really tune into the body and see where you're at. And we would check in multiple times throughout the day. Am I feeling anxious? Am I feeling depressed? Am I having low energy? Uh, where am I at with my irritability? Am I feeling positive emotion? Am I not? Am I feeling more cynical or negative emotion? And I think it's really important that we we take time throughout the day multiple times to ask ourselves that question where are we right now? Because a lot of us get caught in this cycle of life of life is very busy and we run and we run and we run and we run. And you might be able to do that for the first day and the second day. But then all of a sudden after a month of doing this and you're not checking in, you're not saying, hey, how am I self caring for myself? Am I giving myself the time to kind of slow down a little bit and not only check in with myself, but ask myself, what am I feeling right now? Where am I? Where, you know, what's going on with the body? And there's very interesting thoughts too that come from even this this space too. And I mean, this is another conversation on its own, but there's there's a part of mental health that includes the brain, but there's also a part of mental health that includes the body. So significantly. Um, I'm always fascinated by 
the impact that exposure to chronic stress, exposure to trauma, the impact of that on our nervous system, not just our brain, but then physiologically. And your body is so amazing in terms of how it adapts. Oftentimes, symptoms of PTSD are your body's way of coping and trying to keep you alive from an evolutionary perspective. And that's a whole other conversation um, and, and one that I dive deeper into on my social media and in my course there. Um, but just this idea that your body is going to respond and adapt to keep you alive. But then let's say, for example, now your body is storing fat in a different way because it recognizes that you're stressed. And from an evolutionary perspective, it wants to give you quick access to easy energy stores. But now your metabolism is shifting the way your body is storing fat around your abdomen is changing. Like there's this whole ripple effect, not just of what goes on in your head, but literally how your physical body changes when you're under chronic stress, thinking that it's doing you a favor and keeping you alive, but again, can have such an impact on people's day to day. There and, and again, I have so many thoughts that even come from that space, the behavioral issues that will come from the imbalance of the hormones as we go through stress and post-traumatic stress and, and trauma. And I mean, everybody thinks that mental health is very much just a conversation about your brain. And I would actually disagree. I would think it's more about your body, your emotions, your brain, and the whole picture of you and that connection that exists within you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's so many yeah, different really levels to this. We really have to take a whole person approach to it because there's, there's so many interconnected pieces to this. And so again, as you're assessing and trying to prevent, there are things that you can recognize in terms of caring for your body, your nervous system, your mind. And on the other end of things, what might have to get addressed in treatment and who you might want involved in your treatment, because oftentimes there's multiple treatment providers that can be a part of caring for that. I couldn't agree more. For our first episode, this was a lot. We unpacked a lot of good conversation here around mental health and the relationship that it's going to have with all of us that walk this uh, this journey of life. Now, as we close off here, I do want to come back to you. Because there are going to be people that listen to this that now want to jump over and get engaged with you. And I fully support that. I think you are absolutely wonderful. uh, And I cannot wait for this to come out and for others to latch on to you and seek you out in some way. Now, you are on social media. You have a course. You have a whole bunch of stuff behind you outside of just being here on my podcast. Tell me about where people can go to find you and what kind of things you're offering right now to help those in need. And, And specifically, something that I did with you was I did your course and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So let's talk about what you have right now for yourself. To find me, social media, I am at Sanctuary Wellness, Sanctuary W-L-N-S. And so on there, I really, you know, a lot of the inspiration for what I'm posting comes from conversations that I'm having repeatedly with clients, right? It's just what is information that most people can benefit from? Um, And so I really try to share that there because being able to understand that gives people so much relief often, just knowing that you're not alone in this experience or how it might tie into a trauma or stress picture. Um, And then the other thing uh, that I've worked on is 
developing a course that people can work through. What I was running into was A, you want to meet with somebody, but their wait list is really long. And that goes for me as well. And then B, as a psychologist, I'm licensed to provide services in Ontario. So as I'm making all of these connections with people like you who are across Canada, across North America, as much as I wish I could connect and dive into some of these things with people on a therapy level, my licensing right now just doesn't allow me to do that work. But what I have been able to do is capture so much of what I would explain to my clients in a video course where I talk through what are the nervous system concepts, what are some of the practical tools and approaches, how might you do that monitoring of where you're at day to day, and really taking about five or six sessions of content that I might go over in therapy and put it into a course that anybody can access. And I love that because like you mentioned, some people may not even be ready to come in and sit down and have the conversation. But this is a great way just to start to build that understanding and think about, well, what might a psychologist tell me or what would Jasmine talk to me about here? So I've really tried to make that accessible for people so that they're not having to wait to access that information. And it's just more widely available to whoever might benefit from hearing it right now. The fight or flight response, fight, flight, freeze response that we can often experience in life, whether we get chased from a bear or we see a, a murder that happens in front of us, or we're a first responder is a human response to a traumatic event, something that is very abnormal that is happening to us. And I know when I took your course on mindfulness and mindfulness is very much a buzzword nowadays, everybody says practice mindfulness, and then everybody has a different approach of what does mindfulness mean to them them. But your approach to mindfulness was in the course done very well. There is immense value there in that course. I would walk away from each little lesson as I went through it. I think there was, how many lessons were there again? There's four. Yeah. With about five, six videos in each of those four modules. Absolutely. And you do a very good job of for me, when I experienced, because I still do suffer from almost a continued state of fight or flight, and I usually have to knock myself out of it and come back to more of a balance, doing that course, it helped me immensely. And I, I, I'm an older dog in this, in this junkyard of talking about mental health and PTSD. And trust me, I know how to do it, but you taught me a few things too. So if I can say that there's value there and that there would be value there for you as well. So I hope that we can gain some support for you and that people pop over and they get the help that they need. Because again, we're not, maybe sometimes in life we're not in crisis or we're not preemptively ready to go and talk about this stuff. Maybe we want to learn about mindfulness. Maybe we want to learn about a slower pace of living or a more connected way of living. And that is very healthy for us. This narrative of go, 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 you know, encounter trauma after traumatic event and continue on is not healthy. No, no, that's exactly it. As much as mindfulness is a buzzword, I love it because it's so practical in terms of slowing down and being present and figuring out what is your goal in this moment. And when we're trying to offset the impact of trauma and chronic stress, being able to do that strategically, having skills to get the most out of each moment for healing your body, for taking care of your mind and body, that's critical. So it just, it provides us a really nice way of doing that. Everybody, this is Dr. Jasmine Dean, committed to helping others. 
specifically in the first responder world. However, she is willing and more than able to help others in civilian life as well. Now, she currently is very busy. So if you do reach out to her and she says, hey, I can't take you on as a new client. We just talked a little bit about this. Uh, That's unfortunately part of some of the challenge that that are currently unfolding right now in Canada with mental health. We don't have enough care providers in this space. Hopefully that can change. But what she is building is something that is very, very valuable. And I applaud you for it because you're building uh, awareness through an Instagram account about the conversations that you're having with your clients. And you have this other mode of making sure that people are taken care of through an approach to mindfulness, which is such a huge, valuable key in life that we need to have. But the beautiful thing here is it doesn't end here. Dr. Jasmine Dean and I are going to continue to do more episodes here. So this for the first episode, I'm incredibly proud of it. We're going to leave it off there. That's enough information for us right now so we don't get overwhelmed. Uh, We're going to take a break here, but we look forward to seeing you again. Jasmine, thank you so much for being here. It was an absolute honor. Thank you, Nate. I enjoyed it. Thank you for your continued support with this project. And thank you for tuning in today.